Welcome to Culture Radar, Australia's leading smart safety culture platform. Do you want to transform your safety culture from your Achilles heel into your competitive edge? Stay tuned to find out how, as Dr. Gary Marling shines a light on important safety issues as he interviews globally recognised safety experts and talks about why an appropriate safety culture is vital to you and your organisation. Are you putting your people at the centre of safety? Find out now. Hey, look, thanks very much for coming in for our inaugural culture and coffee uh, session. Um, and you're from People and Risk, and I love the name of your company, putting those two words together, especially the emphasis on people first. So tell us a little bit about People and Risk and what you do. Um, thanks, Gary. So, it, look, it's, it's nothing special. It's just me, really. I mean, I wanted to obviously have a brand that represented what I did. Uh, and I'm, to be really honest, I'm still kind of struggling with if that's what it is. But it is in the end about how people deal with uncertainty. I suppose that's what's always appealed to me. And in, in, in the most recent study, that's what I was kind of focusing on. Um, I've now probably drifted more into the broad area of culture and engagement, which is probably part of the reason we're here. But essentially, um, yeah, I've been in safety a long time and um, had a variety of roles and done a lot of training stuff and, and different pieces. And I, I felt myself drifting into this area of, um, yeah, why people do what they do and, and now more broadly in terms of how that's influenced by the social context around them. Um, so it's a good question and I'm not sure I'm answering it well, but people at risk is still just me working with companies on, on how they deal with people. I suppose that's the, if I can summarise it that way. So Dave, I've had a look at your website and I've known you a while and I've heard you talk and um, you're heavily influenced by uh, possibly a new theme coming through in the safety world, the uh, social psychology of risk. So how does that impact on, uh, on people in terms of managing their, their, their risks? Yeah, cool. So I guess obviously that's that idea of, well, uh, framed up as the idea of sort of worldviews in, in safety, which in itself is, is still an emerging issue. Um, but it's one of the ways that I frame the work that I do to try and give it some context. So um, I, I would summarise it down and say social psychology um, within a safety context is looking at how, people, how people's safety decisions and behaviour is influenced by the world and people around them. That's I guess fundamentally what social psych is about, is how people are influenced by the world around them. Um, and I think that's got some relevance in safety when you're tackling issues like behaviour and, and why groups of people do different, different things. Um, I really try to be clear to separate myself out then from other areas of safety. Um, I would not be very good at trying to brief a board on legal issues because I want to keep talking about cultural stuff. Uh, I shouldn't be doing slip testing. I shouldn't be doing hygiene monitoring, I um, shouldn't be necessarily writing procedures unless I'm giving advice about language um, and I shouldn't be designing guards. Um, you know, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that I don't think social psych is suited to, but I think it's well suited to uh, tackling culture because in the end, for me, culture's about the, the group sort of uh, beliefs and assumptions. Great. So you've used the term culture a few times. So... What, um, how do you see culture and how do you think it can be tackled? Yeah, cool. So um, that in itself is a really cool conversation that I like having with companies is just to ask that and say, well, what does culture mean? Because um, what the, the answers to that reflect the existing set of beliefs. So broadly, I would 
tend to go towards uh, Edgar Schein's concept of culture. That's the most common definition that I would use, which shortened down is shared assumptions and, and beliefs, uh, lengthened out, and I often don't always get the wording right, but is um, sort of shared assumptions and beliefs that have been developed as groups of people um, solve problems, uh, internal and external problems in the organisation uh, that are considered valid enough to be taught to others. So it's, it's and to contrast that, it's shared beliefs and assumptions, and, and I'll directly contrast against that, against maybe a more orthodox view where you might hear uh, culture is the way we do things around here. Um, <clears throat> that tends to align culture with behaviour and, and so it tends to then mean organisations when, when they're trying to look at culture, they look at behaviour, whereas my context would be culture drives behaviour. Um, and that's sort of where I come to. Now, in saying that, to complicate it even further, I still like using other models to... Um, help organisations imagine culture. So uh, Dr Rob Long talks about a culture as a cloud and that's a really interesting metaphor or allegory for it because it's this thing that you can't touch but you can feel it and see it. Um, and again, that's the paradox. Most people in an organisation can easily talk about culture. It's good, bad, toxic, healthy, but can't always define it easily. Um, I use Cameron and Quinn's model of the competing values framework uh, it doesn't necessarily define culture again, but what it does is give us a great model for organisations to be able to understand what's going on and what are the competing forces at, at play. Um, I use Hudson's culture maturity model. Uh, again, it, it, in my opinion, it, it doesn't help you move. Like, I don't think Hudson's work is particularly useful for how to change, but it's really useful to give context um, and it helps predict where you are and what's going on. So that's sort of, that would be my most common sort of models that I use. The other thing that Shine talks about is um, culture existing at three levels. So artefacts, things we see, hear, feel and touch, uh, espouse beliefs and then underlying assumptions. So those, so Shine's two concepts of shared assumptions and beliefs and the, the sort of model helps say, this is what we're talking about, but also it can be out of alignment and it, it's different from sort of good or bad um, in there. So. So they're, they're the sort of models I use. Um, the other part in how to tackle it, that's a tricky one. Um, at its simplest, and I'm wary that it sounds too simple, that I think the primary tool that we can bring to bear um, is language. So I sometimes talk about language as being the currency of culture. Um, and by language, that can be written language as well. That's signs, symbols, spoken. Even the whole semiotics. The semiotics of it, yes, that's right, yeah. So, so where semiotics is about the sort of meaning of signs, symbols and language, um, the, yeah, so, so when I'm talking to companies about how to, what is culture and how to influence it, I, I, I consistently come back to language. When I'm listening to organisations talk, I'm always listening to the language because that's a sign that, um, you know, it's an indicator of what's going on, of what the shared beliefs are underneath it. Um, so when somebody, when you hear somebody say, um, you know, don't bother reporting anything around here, nobody does anything. So that's, that language is an indicator of some underlying belief. And if it's a shared belief, then that's a cultural element and that's something that an organisation might want to tackle. Um, how do they tackle it? They could tell everybody to report stuff or I would say they could tell stories about the value of reporting and stories are a really cool way of influencing meaning and beliefs. Um, the challenge I'm aware of in all this is, is it's really warm and fuzzy. 
you can't proceduralize it you can't can't measure it that's that's you can't measure stories and things like that is, is what i mean so i don't know if that made sense oh that's, that's very good one of the um one of the terms that's coming through strongly from a lot of practitioners like ourselves and i know you talk about this is high reliability organizations so from a social psychology point of view what does that mean yeah cool so um, my, uh, the first exposure I had to uh, reliability or high reliability organisations uh, for me comes out of the work of Carl Wieck. Um, Carl Wieck was a social psychologist, so it's, it's obviously close to my heart because um, it, it came out for me coherently f the first time in a, a book called The Social Psychology of Organising, so published in 1979. It's interesting to think how long the concept's been around for. Um, what I will say is what... I'm a little concerned that what is happening is we're taking concepts, which just happens in safety all the time, taking concepts that, that are around, like the five elements of reliability that V talk, first talked about, and we take them and apply them in other settings. So we're seeing them being applied now, I think, from a systems thinking point of view and maybe in other areas or, or worldviews of safety. Um, and I'm, as a sideline, I'm a little worried that that might not go well. So the social psych part of it, the real framing that V gives it is, um, high reliability organisations or being reliable, he actually talks about as mindfulness, or, or sorry, organisations being mindful. And to take that one level further, he actually doesn't talk about organisations, he talks about people organising. So he would say that HRO is something that you do, not something you are. So organisations are HROing, not HROs. And the reason for that, in my view, and looking at his work, is because it's about a set of beliefs and assumptions that exist in an organisation that influence how the organisation and the people respond when something's not right. So HROs look like normal organisations nearly all the time, under business as usual. It's only when something unexpected happens or there's high uncertainty or an incident occurs that they respond differently. And so when you then apply the five elements of reliability or, or mindfulness or, that Vic would talked about, as a set of beliefs, you say, um, so reliable organisations uh, have a preoccupation with failure. So it's not about trying to say you've got to be pessimistic all the time, but they maintain a belief that despite all of our planning, you never know what could surprise us. They resist overconfidence and they resist hubris. Um, that is an interesting area in orthodox safety where if you've gone a million hours lost on injury free, you tend to think you're safer. And so you, 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 it's so attractive to go, we're a really safe organisation, a reliable organisation. And I actually think this aligns well with generative and some other concepts as well, would be saying we get more concerned with the length of time we go without an incident because what's because because they know uncertainty is a, is, a, is a fact. And so they get more worried that we're missing things. So that it's not they're pessimistic or, or paranoid, but they're like, they've got this chronic unease or as uh, Dr Long would say, this, they entertain doubt all the time. So they've got this preoccupation with failure. They've got good sensitivity to operations, which really just means they're connected to their front line. So one of the ways that you hear about impending signs of disaster early is people tell you, you know, it doesn't come up in data, but to hear that you've got to be connected with your front line. It's one of the reasons why large organisations have a natural problem with it, because the leaders are naturally disconnected. Um, but it's, it's about a belief that when things are uncertain, the people who are best placed to inform me, if I'm a leader, are my frontline staff. That's a belief I've got to have. I think it's really hard to systemise that. 
that's like a flattening out of the organisational structure to get that information up quicker yeah. and give those who can make decisions. Absolutely, yeah. But, but you've got to believe. So, so again, an example I might give here is um, there's conflicting information. Our data says we're running well, but, our, but we're getting all this discontent from the front line and, and there's, there's people saying things like, there's, something's about to go wrong, we're just being lucky, you know, and, and there's, there's, there's high turnover or something like that. So the data looks fine safety-wise, but the feeling is something's not right. So how do I satisfy that? So first of all, I've got to be okay with, is this an impending warning sign? So I've got this preoccupation with failure, this is something. Um, I then have to have a sensitivity to it to hear it and be willing to investigate. Now, the third element, which is a reluctance to simplify, if I turn that around, is a willingness to complicate. So it's really much more attractive to go, well, the data still says we're fine, we're okay, or to go and get an audit done, or to talk to my Lex, my Lex line manager down or line manager up and go, what do you think? And, and the problem is they'll go, yeah, it's fine. In that situation, though, as a leader, I might be willing to go, no, nah, something doesn't feel right and I'm going to investigate. And that is difficult because it's time and effort and money and it might make things worse because when you scratch the surface on some of these things, it turns out, you know, it, it could be a maintenance thing. It could be that you've got this, you keep getting your maintenance program audited and everything looks fine, but the, the, the feedback from staff is that things are breaking down a bit more often than, than we might expect. So that's weird information. Do I scratch the surface on my maintenance program and actually find out that it's completely a facade? Do I really want to know that? That's tough for organisations to do, and that's what I think that a reluctance to simplify is about. So that, those first three things are, are beliefs that organisations have. The second two are about, so that, sorry, the first three are you see weak danger signals earlier, that's the language of, of high reliability, and the second two, the last two, sorry, are um, deference to expertise and a commitment to resilience. So when things go wrong and are uncertain and, and, and fudgy, you need people who have the most expertise to be able to make decisions, not necessarily the most authority. Um, if you need a maintenance person to be able to shut something down or you need a person on site to call in some extra staff or whatever it is, and the classic would be cost of that, if it's going to cost $10,000, but normally to get a $10,000 spend, you've got to talk to two managers up, that's an authority versus expertise issue. Now, normally business as usual, that's how it should work. That's why you have authority levels. But at critical times, you need to move away from that. A system won't work if I've got to wait for my manager to turn up the next day. Um, again, it's very difficult to systemise that, but that's what that deference to expertise is. Somebody on the front line makes a call and everyone in the organisation says, we'll back you. Sometimes they're going to make the call and it was wrong. And that's the tricky time when they've got to say, we still back you because we get it. And the commitment to resilience um, is just a thing of saying, we know, we, we know that... We know things are uncertain. We know things will go wrong, but we've got a commitment to stay on track rather than being derailed. It's a touchy issue here, but I've, I've spoken to some people where you see organisations overreact incidents. You see whole industries have a two-day stand-down for safety. We've seen it recently in the mining industry, haven't we? Absolutely, yeah. And if you talk to somebody on site who's at a different site and say, why you stood down, they don't know. And they, they say... I don't know what I'm meant to do. I don't understand what we're meant to do with this. And so it actually, I think, makes things a bit worse. So that's a broad level of we know things will happen and we don't like them, but we're going to... It doesn't derail us. And even things like resources, that you... It's OK, why, why, why do we have extra staff or why do we have extra resources or why have we built contingency in our maintenance plan? It's like, because we know things go wrong and we don't want it to derail us. I did work with a council 
and they I asked them typically how many weeks a year do they have unplanned maintenance stuck in their maintenance schedule and they said it's like usually two to four weeks and this might be because of weather but it also is because councillors get involved and you know people it just things happen so every year two to four weeks of unplanned maintenance work gets stuck in their planned maintenance program I said, so do you plan with only 11 months or 11 and a half months of maintenance? No, no. Because at the beginning of the year when they do their maintenance plan, if they left a one-month gap, they'd get ridiculed for it. So they have to plan it out 12 months, even though they know they'll never hit it. So it's a paradox for them, but a commitment to resilience is about going, we think resilience is more important than looking right. So again, long explanation, but it's, it's why I come back to reliability or an or being organisation being mindful is about this set of beliefs that are maintained, not so much a set of processes. And it's why they look normal nearly all the time, but it's when things go wrong, they respond differently. They see weak danger signals and they respond better. Great. I, I love the concept of being an HRO versus HROing. Yeah. That's a, that's a great explanation. Dave, that was a, that was a great um, description of, um, of HRO. Uh, in fact, the, the part that I love was the um, how you described HROing as compared to being a high reliability organisation and the number of elements that, that um, went into that. Now, besides HROs, there are a number of what we could describe as possibly just good practice um, things that uh, people should be doing as part of their culture as well. So considering that sort of bag of issues or elements we need to, to uh, think about in terms of culture, can you give us your opinion in terms of measuring culture, um, how you make people understand their culture, how people can shape their culture for where they want it to be? Um, because we live in a dynamic world, things are always changing uh, and, and you need to meet not only your safety uh, objectives, but also your business objectives and they might be competing as well. So if you can just give us your opinion on, on that. Yep, cool. So um, I think you can measure elements of culture. Um, I, I'd come back to, for me, if it's about underlying beliefs and assumptions, we can clearly um, expose them and uncover them and we can measure them. So, and, and using um, probably the other element of, of alignment, um, the, the tricky part I think with measurement can be benchmarking and I'm not I'm, it's an uncertain area for me that the risk that an organization's because it's so it's so desirable in orthodox safety right to want to measure ourselves compared with others so we can analyze and measure I think elements of culture the tricky part is then to say how does that compare to someone else because that's I'm, I'm, that might be a tricky thing to be reliably say but if I come back to um, the, the, that, that broader question um, part of the work that I think organizations need to go through and they need to tackle is, well, if we want to work on culture meaningfully, then you need to have an aligned concept of, first of all, what culture means. So that that's something in itself. Otherwise, you've got all the leaders talking about culture, but it, 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 are they talking about behaviour? Are they talking about beliefs? Are they talking about consequences? What are they talking about? So if we talk about safety then, um, once I would say, if you pick a belief like it's about shared beliefs, shared, shared assumptions, um, then within safety, it's like, well, what are the... What beliefs do we want to have in this organisation? So an example might be, we think it's really important that people feel like they can stop unsafe tasks. So that's, and that's a classic one, right? It's, it's it, it, 
And the reason I say that is because it's one of these ones where organisations tell everybody. So this isn't a knowledge thing. Like this is why beliefs are different from knowledge and why um, Shine's concept of artefacts espouse beliefs and underlying assumptions works. If I ask anybody in an organisation, do you have the right to stop an unsafe task? They will all say yes. If I, if they trust me and I say to them, can you? Probably what they'll say is it depends. And again, it, this highlights the complex nature of it. If somebody's got a broken chair, they're probably probably okay going, my chair's broken. You know, I'm not going to sit on that chair unless it's safe. So that's a, it's a form of stopping unsafe tasks, right? But if somebody, somebody's been up all night because their kids have kept them awake and, and they didn't sleep a wink and they've got a deadline at 10 a.m. that morning and they're thinking, I shouldn't come to work this morning. I should, you know, the right thing to do here is really to ring and go, I shouldn't come to work. Can they? And that, that's a different thing, right? So what's influencing that is their belief of what will happen. What's the right thing to do now? And that's been influenced by it. Now, can I, can I measure that? Um, I think you can. I think you can ask questions around, um, you know, that they need to be tricky questions because if you just say, can you refuse to do an unsafe task, you know, people will go yes or no. But if you were running a focus group, for example, you might get a different response there. But that's harder to quantify. <laughs> but you could you could get that information out. Um, you could you could ask some questions in in, in the right way, like um, you know you you could ask an absolute question around um, you know you could, you can uh, there's no reason to do any unsafe task or something like that, and you'd get an interesting response there because of the absoluteness of it. You're forcing people to say every task you could stop, and they might not agree with that, and you'd get some data. Um, some examples of stuff I've seen too is where you ask questions exposing these different beliefs in different ways. So um, uh, you might ask a group of people, um, do, uh, do mistakes improve our systems? And, and most people will be like, yeah, absolutely. So you could get some data on that about generally, you know, 85% of people in the organisation agree that mistakes and errors improve systems. But then you might ask a question that's quite emotive around um, something like, uh, uh, you know, errors are tolerated around here, which is a, quite an emotive question because using tolerate, not accepted. Um, the language again. Again, it's all about language and it's all about what you're trying to push people in there. And even, by the way, how you say um, uh, we can report something around here versus I can report something. I and we will get you a, a difference between um, I believe safety is important, we believe safety is important, and you'll get a different response. Um, the tricky part is you've got to interpret that. Even the word we, the interpretation of that, is it my team or is it the organisation? Uh, absolutely, yeah. And you might sometimes want to choose to change that. Our organisation manages incidents well, you know, or, or one I use. So, so I know I've, I haven't quite answered that last question and I'm going to come back to my comment around benchmarking. Um, the tricky part is you might sometimes customise questions for an organisation. So I did some work in an organisation that specifically wanted to address bullying so we put in a question in a survey we did, basically saying um, uh, our organisation manages bullying well. It was just an outright question, but well is subjective. So, you know, we, we were after that subjective response and what we got was an overwhelming no, like a disagreement with that statement. And because we also had some stacking in there between leaders and workers, we could see a variation of how that was answered. So leaders thought they managed it better than frontline workers did, which isn't a surprise. Um, we, we see things like that in that, uh, so 
Uh, mistakes improve our systems? Yeah. Errors are tolerated around here? No. But interesting, what we got was leaders in the organisation were um, much more positive. So errors are tolerated around here? Absolutely. Frontline workers, errors are tolerated? No. So that's an alignment issue, um, which is still separate to do we want to tolerate errors? And you've got to tackle both, right? You've got to tackle why is it that our leaders think we're more tolerant of errors than our workers? What's going on? Now, there's an element of probably optimism bias. There's also an element of people are more forgiving of their own errors. So leaders are more forgiving of their own stuff-ups and therefore they think the organisation is because that's they're the organisation. Frontline workers just get hammered when they stuff up. So that's what they see. Anyway, um, it's more likely, for example, that a frontline worker error leads to a safety incident than a leader error as well. So psychologically, they'll probably see those errors as more critical. There's a whole lot of dynamics going on. That's tricky to measure, but I think what you can do is measure elements of how people answer and then do probably focus group and then try and pluck away at it, which is again why I'd say you can get some really good data and you could benchmark yourself over time. But I I'm unsure about the benchmarking against another organisation only because they might have a different set of drivers. Um, even if you've, you know, if you've had an incident, the, 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 the recency of that incident will influence how groups respond, which is sort of a climate response as well, um, which is why I think context is everything. Like, it is, um, you know, if you're in the mining industry at the moment, you, you'll have a different vibe than in the hotel industry. But, you know, five years ago, the regulator did a massive push on hotel industry. And so that they were getting regulated and they were getting visited a lot more and they would have a different response to questions around it. So, yeah, it's, it's tricky and it's variable. And it's, uh, it's one of the reasons why I both empathise with organisations but also say you've got to tackle this. Um, it, it, it is hard to quantify. So even in the safety world, I say you, you need a coherent way of describing what safety means. So this would be an example culturally where I'd come back to. Most often organisations at, at the simplest level will anchor safety to harm. So they'll come back and say, were we safe? And, and the answer is embedded in, did we harm anybody? What's our data? That sort of stuff. Even though they talk about other things, it's still, even if it's, uh, did you go home at the end of the day? It's still a harm-based response. So the problem with that is if we didn't harm anybody, then we were safe. But when you're, you know, when you're having your barbecue for a million lost time injury hours free or whatever, and you're saying you're safe, the workers may well have a different opinion. So, so culturally, you've got this problem there. So I say you need a different way or a more complex way of describing safety. I think safety should be linked to risk, which is about uncertainty. So we come back to this idea of, you know, you have to embrace uncertainty, which means you have to have entertained doubt. You can't be overconfident. Um, the problem is you can't measure risk as easily. So we didn't hurt anybody this week, but we, you know, even, even from a structured point of view, you might have been outside your, your acceptable risk levels. But how many times, you know, there's a to measure it's there, but you can't measure it. Um, and, but if you said that, if you said, okay, our, our safety to us means nobody gets hurt, but to do that, and you, you frame off the outcome to the process, to do that, we need to make sure we're managing our risks, that our workers are supported. Um, you might also include we need to make sure we look after the well-being of our people, which is, again, a very tricky area. But you might have four or five um, aspects of what being safe looks like. Some might be behavioural, some risk, some outcome like harm, mm -hmm. but you, you anchor it to it. 
And it would mean then that at the end of the week or six months, you could say, were we safe? You go, well, we didn't hurt anybody, but we think that a number of times we were outside of our risk tolerance or we haven't looked after people's wellbeing. And what that means then is you've got a different context to say we're not safe. Culturally, so I come back to the culture, then you're changing the beliefs of the organisation because you're changing the language. We didn't hurt anybody, but we weren't safe. Suddenly now the focus becomes, well, what do you mean we weren't safe? Well, we burnt out three people or we've got two off on stress leave or we you know, had three events where we were outside our risk acceptance. And, and, and you've got, because the language has changed, people will now change their focus about what they pay attention to. Leaders will, I guarantee, if you said to the board, you know, nobody got hurt over the last six months, but we're really confident we weren't safe at least five times, they're going to get really fixated on that five times. Mm. The issue is you still can't measure it. And I accept the paradox that comes with that, um, but I think that's what being a more mature organisation starts looking like over time. Um, and it's, it's yeah, I haven't, in no way am I putting up my hand saying I've found a solution to that, but um, I, I think it's a path forward. Um, a client, I worked with their senior leaders and they specifically raised the issue of fatigue and burnout. So they know they're, they know they're burning out their staff. It's an engineering services business. But they, they're just not sure. They're stuck in this bind of we work to deadlines, we make people do long hours, but we're not sure how to fix it. And so I've started saying, well, let's include the idea of wellbeing in the idea of safety. Let's link that language. Um, and I think what will happen then is in 12 to 24 months' time, there'll be this, there'll be dissonance created. So it's a, it's a form of cognitive dissonance, but it's happening organisationally within the people is they're going to have to look at each other and say, we keep saying that safety is about wellbeing, but we keep treating our people like dirt. And, and so what should happen is that dissonance should build up um, over time. And, and then I, I would be being smart. I'd say, well, stop talking about wellness then because at least that way you'll feel better. And hopefully they'll say, no, but we want it to be about wellness. And I'll say, okay, we'll stop treating people like dirt. And it's, yeah, it's a way of using language to manipulate power and ethics and meaning in the organisation. Um, can you measure that? Probably you can measure elements of it. And, and I think you can benchmark that over time. I like the fact that you've um, brought up the benchmarking with other people or other organisations um, is something that needs to be carefully thought through because uh, yeah, the dynamics um, or the nature and scope of a particular business within an industry might be different to uh, another business in the same industry. So benchmarking against yourself is, uh, is probably the, the better way to go. Um, I think it's more meaningful. Yeah. And, and because um, everyone loves meaning, that's what humans do, add meaning to things. And we love data. And I, I personally go, there's nothing wrong with data. It's only ever what we make it mean. So same thing, a lower injury rate we tend to make it mean we're safer, even though it might not. So there's a constant tension as soon as you go down a path of measuring anything, of managing what people are going to make it mean. So um, I like the idea of having some data on, on cultural elements because I think it gives you something to talk about. It's a context. The risk to manage at the same time is managing what it means. There's a natural will, I'm assuming, in every organisation that, that there'll be a percentage or a number and that'll be used as to say what our culture's like, and that then it gets reported up. And as soon as it gets reported up, that the meaning around it gets lost and it becomes a number and a score. And that could, because suddenly now you've got, well, we want to be 95 without knowing what 
what does that really mean? What does that really mean? And um, so I heard an example yesterday, which was just one of these funny ones. A, a company had an incident where somebody was um, dehydrated. And so they sent out a flash alert and they told everybody it's important you're hydrated. Two weeks later, they had an issue where somebody was overhydrated. And, and it, you know, it was, there's, a lot, there's a bit more to it, but trade-offs, power, ethics, trajectory, this is all the language that needs to come along with it. And, and having conversations like, if we're going to start measuring culture, that's okay, but what are we going to do with the data and what do we make it mean? And I would advise organisations to try and have those conversations as yeah. early as possible. You can't understand it unless you go through that. that that's right, process. yeah, yeah, yeah. You just, just want to be on top of it all the time. What's this going to mean and where are we going? Is it, so. yeah. Excellent. Dave, thanks very much for having coffee as yeah. we discuss culture. It's, uh, it's been um, a really good insight into how you, your take on, on, on culture and, uh, and the other aspects of the business too. Um, and uh, again, thank you. You're the inaugural one, and we hope that uh, the others can measure up to this one. Oh, no. well, I've been talking about benchmarks. I think you've set a high benchmark. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, well, I just really appreciate the opportunity to share kind of some of my beliefs and thoughts on it and, and get it out there. And, 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 you know, I think I know a little bit about something that I'm really happy to say I don't know a lot about a lot of other stuff. So uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Terrific.